Autism spectrum disorder affects communication as well as emotional and social development. Researchers have been studying the brain for decades to better understand the differences that manifest as autism. Recent studies that measure rapid eye movements have been showing great promise into our understanding of ASD. You're listening to ReachMD. I'm Paul Rakuski, your host. And with me today is John Fox, Ph.D., Director, University of Rochester Medical Center, Del Monte Neuroscience Institute. Welcome, Dr. Fox. Hi, thank you very much. So could you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Well, I'm a neuroscientist. I work here at the University of Rochester, and I study mostly neurodevelopmental disorders. I'm actually in a branch of neuroscience called cognitive neuroscience for the most part. A lot of what we do is use technologies like electrophysiology, electrodes on the scalp surface of human beings, functional magnetic resonance imaging, and other methodologies such as eye tracking, which I think we'll we'll get around to talking about, to investigate how the brains of individuals with neurodevelopmental disorders or psychiatric illnesses are working, uh, trying to understand the processes behind those diseases, and, you know, with an eye, obviously, then to try to figure out ways in which we can help. So can you talk about the research currently going on in the brain, specifically in the cerebellum, and how it relates to autism spectrum disorder and other neurological disorders. Well, yeah, absolutely. The cerebellum is an extraordinary structure in the brain. If you were to put your hand, the palm of your hand, at the back of your neck, the nape of your neck, right below the posterior part of your head, your your cerebellum is nested in there. It looks for all the world like a cauliflower, and it is primarily involved in motor processes in the brain. If there's one major function for humans and animals that you identify the cerebellum with, it's in motor motor function, movement. So why have neuroscientists focus on eye movement research specifically? Why is it an important piece of the autism puzzle? Well, so what we know is that if somebody has a lesion, if something goes wrong in the cerebellum, we can very directly trace deficits in the cerebellum to difficulties with moving the eyes. So that might be in a situation where somebody, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with the musculature of the eyes or the ability to see, but specifically because of a cerebellar lesion, the ability to move the eyes properly is impacted. And of course, the link then to autism is, this won't be a surprise to your listeners at all, that it's well known or has been observed over the decades by parents, by clinicians, by scientists, that individuals on the autism spectrum often have atypicalities in how they move their eyes and how they fix their gaze on objects in the world. And so it's not a huge leap from a group of individuals with a specific disorder of eye movement to think, well, maybe, maybe there's something going on in the cerebellum there. So I know you've recently done an eye movement study. Can you talk about the design of that study? Sure. So what we do is, you know, well, scientists today can really track the movements of a person's eye with great precision, with great speed, using infrared eye tracking technologies. And so that allows us to know precisely where somebody's looking from millisecond to millisecond, every 1,000th of a second, we can register where exactly where the eyes are focused. So in the experiment that we did, and we're not the only people to have done experiments like this, what we do is we ask folks to look at a computer screen, and then we'll pop a flash up at the edge of the screen, someplace out, so they're looking at the middle of the screen, and we ask them to, you know, when you see that flash, move your eyes as quickly as you can 
and focus on that, where that flash appeared. And so what we call that then, so as you make that ballistic movement of the eyes, we call that a saccade. So it's just a simple way of saying a singular eye movement, ballistic eye movement. Now, what happens is while the eyes are in flight, so you could do this right now at home or, or in the studio there, just you know, move your eyes quickly from the left to the right. And of course, what's happening is the entire world is moving with regard to the movement of your eyes. But of course, we don't see the world moving. We know the world is static. And a large reason for that is because while the eyes are in flight, you're, you're sort of functionally blind. And it's not until the eyes land that you sort of see the world again. And that's one of the ways in which you know, the eye system, the eye movement system interacts with the visual system. Okay, now the next key step here in the experiment is that since we know that the person doesn't see very well as the eyes are in motion, what we do is we move the target back or forward. We move the target from where we originally flashed it. So that when the person's eyes land, they're actually not on the target, not on that flash that we presented. So we've created this, this little trick so that the eye system makes a movement that it thinks is accurate, it lands, realizes that it's not accurate, and then over the course of many trials like that, what will happen is the eye system, the eye movement system, will correct itself. So we call that adaptation. And that's a perfectly normal scenario, and pretty much everybody who is neuro, what we call neurotypical will show this adaptation. They'll show this change in the ballistics of the saccade to account for the error that we've introduced surreptitiously. And what happens is when we do this in individuals on the autism spectrum, we find that they're not adapting as well as neurotypical control individuals. And that tells us then that some aspect of the error correction system in the eye movement system is awry in autism spectrum disorders. And that's what gives us the hint that there may be something up with cerebellar processing, with processing in that cerebellum, that cauliflower structure. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Reach MD. I'm your host, Paul Rakuski, and I'm speaking with Dr. John Fox. We're talking about innovative new testing procedures in the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. So, Dr. Fox, to continue our conversation about the eye movement study that you've been working on, could you describe the number of patients with autism spectrum disorder versus the number that were neurotypical and the average age range of your patients in this study? So, we, we do a lot of work in autism in our laboratories here in Rochester, and we've literally tested hundreds of patients. In this particular study, it's a, it's a pilot study, so the pool was uh, on the small side. And actually, we worked with children on the autism spectrum really from about the ages of five or six all the way to, you know, fully grown adults who are, you know, entering middle age. So it was a very wide range in the, in the age area. Absolutely. Now, that's a key thing. One of the things that really keeps folks working, neuroscientists working in autism awake at night is uh, pertains to our ability to diagnose autism as early as possible. So with current best practices, we find that the diagnosis of autism uh, is, you know, relatively late. Typically, children are being diagnosed for the first time with an autism spectrum disorder between the ages of about four and five years of age. That's all very well. But one of the things in addition that we know is that early intervention strategies are hugely effective 
in these individuals. That's really the, our best approach to ameliorating the symptoms of autism is true early intervention. And so obviously what you'd really like to be able to do is identify these children considerably earlier. A large part of the motivation for the kinds of studies that we're doing, which is to try to come up with measures or metrics that would give you a hint, for example, in a 12-month-old that that child might be uh, at risk to go on to develop an autism spectrum disorder or to pick up a diagnosis of an autism spectrum disorder. And again, this is why these eye movement tests are particularly attractive because they're easy to do. It's relatively inexpensive to record the eye movements of children. And obviously, if these kinds of processes can be discovered in children at 6 to 8 to 12 months of age, or maybe even earlier, we might have the ability to be able to impact the lives of these children considerably earlier than we currently are. The current studies seem to be showing that they're looking to diagnose between 12 and 24 months because of the benefits of early intervention. So a test like this on eye movement would be applicable for a 12-month-old to help in the diagnosis? Absolutely. And in fact, there's good data in the literature from groups working in children as young as four months of age, where you can see the emergence of this saccadic adaptation, these corrective eye movement processes in children as young as four months of age. That gives us some hope that indeed we, we might be able to begin to use this in younger children. So I, I want to emphasize, we don't think this is a magic bullet by any means. We just think it's one more nice tool that we could add to our toolbox as we go about trying to do better and better at making early identifications, early diagnoses. And that's something great to know that this is an additional option that can go into an overall diagnosis that can be one additional thing. Absolutely. I think this is a key point. Now, obviously, we're very excited about this study, but one has to be modest and circumspect about exactly what one study like this can really say. But I think by developing this as well as many other approaches, we may be able to come on with with a sort of multi-pronged approach to doing this that would be effective. So you're looking at options of other testing that could go in conjunction with this to be part of an overall diagnostic approach to identifying individuals? Exactly. So for example, here's, here's a, a scenario. So one of the things that we know from the neuroimaging literature is that one finds a group of people on the autism spectrum who will show uh, deficits or, or, or differences in the structure of the cerebellum using neuroimaging. So if we put somebody in an MRI machine, you're more likely to find deficits in the cerebellum of folks on the autism spectrum than you are in the neurotypical population. Now, neuroimaging is expensive and difficult to do in children but, for example, one could imagine a situation where if you find the eye movement deficit in a young child, you might be then able to, if you like, winnow the pool and say, okay, this is a child who's showing these eye movement deficits. Um, perhaps we should now take this child forward and do some neuroimaging to really assess whether there's cerebellar structural issues. And so in that way, you can put these two techniques together potentially in a very powerful way. But again, I want to stress, there's a lot of research and work that needs to be done before we, were, we get anywhere close to that kind of ability. So if cerebellum dysfunction is found with this test, is there any current medical treatments that can be employed to repair that damage? 
Well, not that I'm aware of with regard to actually repairing structural deficits in the cerebellum. But it sure as hell helps to know that this is a child, for example, that may have these cerebellar deficits, because that would definitely impact how you would deliver therapy to the child. So, for example, if a child has a deficit in the cerebellum, you know then that there is a likelihood that there'll be a strong link between that deficit in the cerebellum and motor developmental issues, which would then allow you to say, well, look, we need to devote our resources to ameliorating motor deficits in this child because the underlying cause is cerebellar. Well, thank you, Dr. John Fox. Oh, thank you very much. My pleasure. My thanks again to my guest, John Fox, Ph.D., Director, University of Rochester Medical Center, Del Monte Neuroscience Institute. We've been discussing autism spectrum disorder. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring podcasts of this and other series. I've been your host, Paul Rakuski, and thank you for listening.